Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. The death toll due to COVID-19 continues to climb and climb, past 100,000 in the UK and 2.3 million worldwide. Many of us still maintain a morbid fascination with checking the latest cases and deaths at 4pm each day. Data on how the pandemic is impacting mental health, other physical health problems, and widening health inequalities is harder to count and probably won't be fully known until long after we're all through this. But what can we say about how lockdown and the wider devastation caused by the pandemic is affecting mental health? And is there anything we as GPs can do about it? Today we talk about the psychological impact of lockdown with Daisy Fancourt and about loneliness with Fahana Mann. I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And joining me for the 22nd time since the pandemic began is Jenny. Hi. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And I think for only the 20th time, it's uh, Navjoy. Hi. <laughs> I'm a slacker. Hi, I'm Navjoy Lada. Uh, I'm a, what am I? I'm a GP in uh, London and head of education at the BMJ. Um, so we had a slight about... existential crisis. <laughs> yeah, who am I? Yeah, understandable. Who am I? Understandable that. at this time. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about data in the intro there a bit, uh, and I thought we could start, you know, completely off topic, but there is a way into the the, the, the topic of today's um, episode. Uh, shall we look at some of the data that we've got from our Spotify listeners? This is the twenty second episode. You know, we've been doing this a while. Yeah. So we we were emailed by Paul, who's I guess Paul Simpson. Would you say he's he's our boss in this? Like podcast dad, podcast, podcast granddad. Yeah, he's like the, the, <laughs> the granddad of the podcast, uh, who had some exciting data about our listeners on via Spotify um, and what music they listen to. So should we should we tell our listeners who who, who they're listening to on Spotify? Go for it. Yeah. So number one, which I was surprised about, was. Uh, T Swift, <laughs> Taylor Swift. Swift. Yeah. I, 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 do you, I, Why are you surprised by that? Talk? I don't know. It's very I popular. Yeah. Anyway, then we've got Ed Sheeran, Elton John. Uh, Ed Sheeran, who is a grandson of a former BMJ editor in chief. Is that so right? Good, uh, oh. good, very on brand. But anyway, so, uh, <laughs> so Ed Sheeran, Elton John, The Beatles, and Queen. So those are the five. It's a real mixed bag, artists. isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure how Elton John sort of snuck in there. <laughs> I listen I listen to Benny and the Jets on repeat. That might all be me. What's the sample size? What's the sample size here, guys? Are we talking like okay. five listeners? Boring, Jenny. A okay, thousand. Five. Come on. Oh, it was 900. Jenny, static. 950. <laughs> so anyway, to link that to the episode, I was thinking, because, um, you know, the Daily Deaths figures are very stark and clear and easy to follow there's obviously debate around them but i kind of feel with the 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 sort of impacts the broader impacts of lockdown it's you know a lot of it isn't quite tangible it's it's a bit like and here's the link so knowing that deep breath in listeners like taylor swift and elton john it's like when you hear something about the impacts of lockdown you just kind of think okay like it it doesn't feel as meaty am i am i right there or (laughs) is that one of my terrible um analogies 
I know. I I see what you're saying. I think we give weight, don't we, to things when we have numbers behind them. And I think for good and for bad, like, you know, quantifying something, obviously, that you can, you know what that weight is. But I think also the, you know, one thing that I've always been struck by with the number of deaths is it just, it just kind of seems so removed from the personal impact that each of those deaths has. Um, And then, you know, for the other impacts, the kind of uh, mental health impacts, the impact on other healthcare problems, which we all see, I think, in our practice, Mm. we're all aware um, anecdotally of them, but which are much harder to quantify. And I think, you know, we see this, you know, there's that thing about, you know, what what gets measured matters. And I think there is this kind of sense Mm. that you can lose sight of these really important effects, but just because we... Um, either that data is taking longer to come through or they're just a bit more intangible and harder to measure. Yeah, 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 I think that's it. And like, why why I want to know what mm. people listen to on, on Spotify, like, it doesn't matter, but that's clearly the only data that Spotify are willing to share with us. So there's a bit of, <laughs> a bit of that I feel here is is that, um, particularly in primary care, I feel like th- th- there's often a, a lot of um, excitement about big data and how it's going to make primary care or general practice better and and yet you just present them with a load of data which actually doesn't really help you the other thing is i think you know sometimes when you see even numbers it can be difficult unless you have been personally affected to remember that each one of those numbers is actually a person you know like 460,000 people, more than that, in the United States have died of COVID or COVID complications as far as we can estimate. And that is just, it's really difficult to get your mind around how large that number is, particularly if, you know, you've been staying at home this t- whole time and don't really know anyone who's who's directly, um, you know, represented one of, one of those people. And you know, similar to like 950 listeners. Well, each one of those is a person who has family members, you know? And like, I I mean, we had a death in um, my husband's family recently due to COVID. And I think you just need to remember that um, that is a huge human life toll. That's, it's it's crazy. Mm. Mm. It's really difficult to kind of continue to feel that as the number grows. Mm-hmm. And I guess as, um, in, in our job as GPs, then actually it doesn't really matter what the data is. Like if the number's going up or down or it's 10% or 50% more, like if there's an individual, you know, in front of you or on the phone asking for your help, then you know, I suppose that's, I'm sounding really corny now, this is, that's your job, but that's all that matters, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's what today is about. It's about the, we're really focusing on the mental health impact of lockdown, but not just lockdown, but the pandemic really. Um, and I suppose, Jenny, your, yours inter- your interview is going to come up first. And I think that gives a really nice, um, well, broader overview of like, well, well what, what has the impact been? Um, so I spoke to Daisy Fancourt. She's a researcher at UCL looking into the mental health impacts across all the lockdowns and had some really fascinating insights. So let's take a listen.
I'm Dr. Daisy Fancourt and I'm an Associate Professor of Psychobiology and Epidemiology at University College London. And over the last year, I've been leading the COVID-19 Social Study, which is the UK's largest study into the psychological and social impact of the pandemic. And I've also been directing the International COVID Minds Network, which is a network of over 140 longitudinal studies from 70 different countries looking at mental health uh, during the pandemic. There are a number of factors, I think, why this lockdown is seeming so much worse for many people. Um, first of all, any kind of novelty that we had in that first lockdown last year has gone. The idea that you would use your lockdown to learn a new language, bake bread, take up a hobby, all of that sensation has really been taken away. I think another factor is that we are now in winter, so shorter days, meaning that people are finding it harder to get out and about. And we know that exercise and being outdoors has been one of the best things for mental health across lockdowns, and that's quite restricted at the moment in the UK. But there's also a sense where it's been going on for so long now. I think lots of people have used up a lot of their coping resources. The, the belief that it would be a short-term hiatus in our lives that would be over quite quickly that many people had last spring, that optimism has really been taken away. And I think we've seen so many examples now of where the promises that have been given, probably not a good idea to give those kinds of promises, but those promises that it would be over soon, only a few more weeks, only a few more months, people aren't really believing them anymore. So lots of people have lost their faith that this is going to be over in the near future. So I think that that sense of hope has dwindled. What, when you think about this issue, is most concerning for you in terms of the health impacts on people? Well, I think when we're talking about the mental health impacts of COVID and of lockdowns, it's really crucial that we think about this as having multiple different phases to it. When we first entered the pandemic last spring, we saw a huge surge in levels of mental distress, anxiety and depression, 50% more people than usual developing levels that we'd consider clinically relevant, clinically significant. Uh, now, this actually, we saw quite a lot of improvements on, on average, over lockdown itself, actually lockdown helping to make people feel that actions were being taken, that were reducing their risk, people getting used to being locked down. And as things eased over the summer, we saw that improvement coming back quite a bit as well. But actually, each time we've seen a surge in infections and, and the promise of new restrictions coming in, we've seen mental health getting worse. But it's not just about the lockdowns. What we've also started to see is that there are other aspects of the pandemic that are affecting people. We're starting to see people who've lost their jobs, who are facing financial difficulties or being bereaved. And these major life stresses are causing other mental health problems now to emerge that are going to be even harder to tackle longer term. We've seen people who've not had access to mental health services or who've not had access to other health services and they've developed chronic illnesses that now have got mental health consequences as well. So this is another aspect of mental health challenges from the pandemic that's going to start emerging more over the coming months. And we've also seen rising levels of inequality and poverty and um, we've got recessions, we've now got Brexit on top, we've got social discohesion. So we've got other issues caused by the pandemic that are going to cause these longer term mental health mm -hmm. issues. Understanding that no one thing can make this better. What for you are the key pieces in a pathway to responding to all the mental health challenges people are experiencing? What's been interesting is that the factor that seems to affect people's mental health the most has been uncertainty. People find it hardest when they don't know what's happening and they feel confused by it. For example, we saw that mental health got a lot worse actually in the lead up to lockdown coming in last March. 
Now, this was the opposite of what many people predicted, because when we look at previous epidemics like SARS, MERS, H1N1, Ebola, we found that mental health got worse when people were in quarantine. So the sort of isolation experience seemed to be driving worse mental health. Whereas with this pandemic, mental health got worse in the lead ups to lockdown coming in and then actually improved in lockdowns. And that, that seemed to be from people being anxious about what was happening, that they weren't going to be safe, that there weren't effective measures in place. So this uncertainty is a huge driver, especially of anxiety. The other thing around uncertainty is if people don't feel they can plan ahead, that's a major effect on their mental health. We've had lots of people in the study when we've done the telephone interviews to contextualize the data, telling us that they found it difficult not knowing if their child's going to be in school in three days' time or not, not knowing if it's okay to book a holiday or bad to book a holiday, not being able to plan for Christmas, even up until the last minute, not knowing if plans were going to be changed. And actually, many people have said they'd rather have the stricter measures announced in advance rather than have glimmer of hope that then gets taken away. So it feels like the stability is what people are craving and in fact, we've seen from the UK, many people, the majority of people are in favour of stricter measures. It's not the measures themselves that people fear. It's the feeling that their lives are on hold because they don't know how to plan around those measures. And I wonder if you think that part of that uncertainty is due to perhaps mixed messaging or ineffective messaging? Definitely messaging has got a huge role to play. And we found that uh, in the first lockdown last spring, 90% of people in the UK felt they understood what they were supposed to be doing. They felt the messaging was clear. By the summer, that was down to just 45% in England. So it had halved. And I think that makes sense when we think about it. There were so many different nuances and caveats to the rules last summer. There were so many different rules and they kept changing so fast. And I think particularly across the autumn, we saw this being exacerbated in the UK with different rules in different parts of England, for example. So uh, this confusion obviously heightens that uncertainty that people feel. And I think as well, it also means people don't know what behaviors they're supposed to be doing. And a lot of people are very keen to do the right thing. They want to play their part. Notably, we see that each time stricter measures are brought in, compliance gets better. It's the opposite of what some people feared. People actually respond very well to having those stricter measures and understanding how serious the situation is. People find it much tougher when the messaging is almost implying that it's not that bad because you've still got these freedoms because it means that they feel there's this tension between being um, strict and sticking to the rules but also feeling do I have to is it really that bad because the rules are as strict as they were a few months ago mm -hmm. and so in terms of making this uncertainty better <laughs> is it as simple as having a better public health response, a more effective response? I feel like we need clear messaging. I feel like we need very transparent messaging. People want to understand why things are happening because you know, public are intelligent. They want to feel that there's a rationale behind it. They want to feel it's driven by science. They don't want to feel it's political. People also want to have the positivity and the sense that there are good things alongside the bad at the moment. They also want to feel, we're finding this from our study, people are saying that they also want to feel that their sacrifices are being recognised. Sometimes we've had mm. stories from politicians that the virus is getting worse because we're not complying. And it's actually not true. It's not at all what the data are saying. What the data are saying is that compliance is incredibly high and that 
it might be the measures are not strict enough. So I think people want to feel that the sacrifices they're making are being appreciated, that they're being recognized. People want to know that they're doing their bit and others value that. And I think we also need, we also want to need those messages around um, social cohesion, around supporting one another. We need to regain that neighborhood spirit that we had nearly a year ago, which we know we can have and can be so beneficial to people. We're not clapping on the streets for carers anymore. That got quite politicized. But that concept of coming out into our neighborhoods and being able to talk across the walls to other people, that kind of thing is incredibly valuable for mental health and morale. Um, and so I want to ask you what you think GPs can do. What do you think is the most important thing or some of the most important things that GPs can be doing right now to support people through um, these longer term impacts of COVID? Many of the GPs that I know and work with have been saying that the, the mental health things that people are coming forward with, they've been triggered by events during this pandemic. And therefore, they're not things that are going to be solved necessarily by antidepressants, for example. So I think the main thing that GPs can be doing at the moment is to use the mechanisms of social prescribing. So we actually saw there was a huge surge in social prescribing at the start of the pandemic. A lot of GPs realizing they didn't have the time to spend with a patient to talk through the difficulties they'd faced, whether it's bereavement, job loss, et cetera, in a 10 minute consultation. But being able to refer that patient through to a link worker who could sit with that patient for an hour discussing what these challenges were and what they needed to do to try and overcome them. That seemed to be the most effective mechanism to supporting people. And in fact, with the link workers, even though we're not able to be as active in our communities at the moment because of lockdowns, those link workers can refer people on to other community support services, whether that's practical support like bereavement advice or financial advice, job centers to try and solve the underlying problems that have triggered the mental health or whether it's support through things like virtual community groups. In fact, we actually find that a lot of the in-person community groups like men's sheds or gardening clubs, some of these are actually able to keep running as support groups, even in lockdown situations, so that there actually are these activities available for people who are experiencing mental health problems. So I think that that's the main message is draw on social prescribing because the link workers are there and the community organizations are there to support in person or virtually. And that's a fantastic mechanism for these patients to feel like they've, they're actually being heard, they're getting the time that they need and they're being offered some potential solutions. The things that are linked in with worse mental health are people spending a lot of time on video contact, which we know is not an effective substitute for a human social contact. And for many people it can make them feel lonelier as a result because they recognize that divide between what that social experience normally would have been. And also that the main driver of poor mental health at the moment from behavior seems to be following the news on COVID. So I guess there's a bit of a general messaging here around encouraging people to put that time aside for self-care, to focus on what those activities that they know help them are. And of course, also using other online resources, whether it's online CBT programs, mindfulness meditation apps, those kinds of programs that aren't necessarily resource limited in the same way as at personal mm. programs, but can still provide that crucial mental health support. Well, thanks, Jenny. That was, that was really cool, really interesting. Um, what should we pick up on there? There's lots of things. I feel like a lot of themes here, which not going on about 22 episodes all the time, but that I can think back to other conversations, other episodes we've had that... Um, that, that give us similar similar themes in 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 our discussions. 
It was such a joy to talk to Daisy. She's, I mean, so brilliant on this topic and others. And um, yeah, I learned a lot from speaking with her. Um, I really appreciated how she pointed out, um, you know, the fact there are acute mental health needs as well as these longer term issues, which are going to persist for years. Um, And that that actually some of the mental health outcomes that she's seen in her studies have actually been in contradiction to what the expectation had been. Um, The piece that really resonated with me was that it was uncertainty that was the biggest driver of anxiety and actually Mm. stricter messaging around and, and stricter restrictions are the things that people were actually able to respond to and that can allow them to feel like they're doing the right thing, playing their part, that they're part of something bigger in this kind of communal response. And um, I mean, we certainly saw that in New Zealand, um, both lockdowns that have happened in New Zealand in 2020 were really about kind of social cohesion and building a sense of communal response to a common target. And um, yeah, that really resonated with me when I spoke with Daisy. Hmm. It was, yeah, I was surprised at that as well. Um, but, but then, yeah, thinking or turning it through a bit, I suppose we, we do see that. Or I, can f- I feel like we see that a lot just in everyday consultations with patients. It's, uh, and I guess we see it in, in other, you know, in articles, I, I guess, as well. And I, I can think of it a lot, or just in my own life, I suppose, when, when things are uncertain, you get scared. <laughs> and yeah, and then you start to panic and everything spirals out of control, can't it? And it comes back to that thing we were talking about as well, about how data can sometimes give you that kind of false reassurance or it may be reassurance, actually. Um, you know, you can kind of want to know more facts, more information in some instances. Um, I, I definitely find that my social media habits is often fueled by wanting to try and fill in some of those gaps. I mean, the thing that I also found interested, interesting was um, the the bit right at the beginning about hope um, and how hope is so important, but actually you don't want like dashed hope or false hope can be damaging. Um, And I think that's something we've seen with the public health messaging that we've had in the UK where plans have had to change at the very last minute. And that almost feels worse, you know, particularly thinking about Christmas when you could have planned for a Christmas, you know, in lockdown or whatever. Um, But it just made me think about, um, in consultation, speaking to patients, like how best to use hope, I think, like, definitely my conversations more recently, um, you know, there's a lot of like, discussion about the vaccine program and how at least there's a kind of end in sight. But I'm very conscious of, you know, um, you know, it's just made me reflect on how, how far to go with that, and actually how to message in a way that yeah doesn't give false hope because I, I think we we know that the vaccines are you know our saviors in many ways but there are still a lot of uncertainties in the road ahead mm. i think that is such a good point um you know you guys probably will have seen the news from south africa you know just getting million doses of vaccine finally from astrazeneca and needing to stop administering it because of the variant and um i think it's really important to keep in mind that as much as we wanted to kind of bookend covid with the end of 2020 it's unfortunately yeah looking like a much longer road ahead and really difficult to kind of 
plan, you know? It's really difficult to plan and get some certainty and things to hold on to um, when when we can't kind of, um, when there's no clear end in sight with respect to restrictions and the pandemic. So I, I, I totally agree with you. So one thing she, she also mentioned, which I thought was uh, relevant about, well, I guess the digital, but also news. And um, I've just finished my my four-week news blackout. And I was very pleased with myself for avoiding you know, mainstream or any news for that time. It felt much better for it. And then it went back on guardian.co.uk and it was this stupid headline about the, the South African variant and the AstraZeneca. And I was like, oh. Oh, yeah. Not <laughs> a thing to go back, back to. Off again. Yeah, this is not, this is not good. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I guess the kind of tangential point here is that, I mean, that, that particular topic I felt wasn't well described in, in the article I read, um, very much overstating, you know, from what is this very small study of 30-year-olds um, looking at um, whether they get mild symptoms of COVID. Uh, but the, the article was very much like AstraZeneca vaccine no longer works. You know, that was, that was the sort of message you, you wanted to weigh with. And we'd, you know. And that's what's been tweeted widely. That's the headline. You know, some people yeah. won't even read the article. So it is, um, you know, this is what our patients, this is our, mm. you know, seeing and dealing with. And no wonder everyone's feeling so kind of... Mm. Um, fraught. Mm. It does feel that way. It feels very, definitely the news and social media have their part to play. I wonder if, um, I wonder if structuring a conversation with a patient around kind of recognizing their sacrifices would be a way to kind of build their sense of self-efficacy. Like, what sacrifices have you had to make? Like, what are some of the things you've had to give up? I wonder if that would make them kind of would be a way to build some reflection about, you know, how much good they have been doing and to get, get some of that sense of agency back in the face of uncertainty. Mm. I don't know. I do wonder sometimes if some of what, how I consult, not always, hopefully, but, but does, um, doesn't always help the person with that self-efficacy and, um, um, yeah, maybe something to look at in a future episode. I don't know about motivational interviewing mm. or just consultation style to to help somebody who's feeling helpless or mm. that they don't have any choices. Hmm. And um, what did you both make of what Daisy said about how video contact can make people feel lonelier? These are like Zoom times. Yeah. <laughs> Is that your experience as Def- well? Um. <laughs> uh- I'm not just the video. I think just working from home, you know, the, the BMJ side of my job where I'm working from home all the time, certainly less connected. I don't know if it's just because of Zoom, but yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely finding the amount of Zoom I'm doing has gone down a bit now just because it does feel, it feels like a poor substitute for being mm-hmm. able to see people. You know, what Daisy said definitely resonated. I, I think the occasional one is still good and uh, really useful way of keeping in touch with people but I think you know it does make you think about the things you miss yeah I remember everyone was using house the house party app weren't they in, in the first lockdown and uh, <laughs> I did this view of my friends and um, they, they, they were just really depressing affairs and and yeah I think so <laughs> I think maybe loneliness is the, the the feeling I had afterwards compared to you know meeting up at the pub mm-hmm. or something where um, yeah so, so we stopped doing those 
What did you um, think of uh, Daisy's recommendation to use social prescribing sort of resources more? Because I definitely think they they have been useful and it's been helpful to kind of have those resources there for some patients. But I do find that, um, you know, a lot of uh, the consultations I've had have felt like just responses to a situation that's very difficult so from you know um parents that are really struggling to manage everything at home um you know where I just don't know that social prescribing would be Mm. very helpful so it's been a bit of a kind of yeah useful in some ways but not in others yeah I I I have reservations too I mean I think we we have a a social prescribing link worker where where I work um who's great and you know many patients have benefited but um yeah, I, I do feel that a lot of the time the problems that people have actually can't be helped so much by that. And and I worry too that if I see the, the solution to, to problems as or go and see the social prescribing link worker, worker instead of perhaps um, continuing some of those really important GP things like following the, following the patient up, you know, that means I don't have to see you again. So go and see them and they'll you know, come back to me if you have to. Whereas... I think a model that works really well for, for for me and some of my patients is you know I'll see I'll see you next week or, or you know keep in contact and, and yeah. people feedback that that can be really helpful. So I think that kind of therapeutic alliance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I have to say that social prescribing doesn't seem to be as well established or structured in the United States. I mean, there are different clinics do different things. You know, um, in the clinic where I used to work, <clears throat> excuse me, we had like a a yoga class that people could join free of charge. And um, that was the kind of thing that seemed to be good for a number of different patients with different concerns. Um, but I'm my, my understanding is that the infrastructure is not as well developed. And I, I suppose my biggest concern with that is what about low-income communities or um, poorly resourced communities where they just simply don't have... Um, enough services for the number of people who are experiencing these devastating losses. Um, You know, thinking about people losing jobs, losing family members, trying to work from home, children home from school. Um, You know, the New York Times just published a series on working moms uh, called The Primal Scream because of the severe depression, anger, anxiety that so many particularly working women are facing right now. And and to try to then say, oh, and also go do this thing, you know, go, now I'm going to give you something else that you have to try to fit in or manage or um, find time for. And then to have barriers accessing that service because there aren't enough mm. or there are weights or whatever it might be just seems... Like mm-hmm. it could cause more stress or burden than benefit. Yeah, yeah, uh, and this this comes up a bit in. I'm linking a link to our, our next interview now because this is relevant in the area of loneliness because loneliness often gets touted as one of the the things that social prescribing is good at helping with. Uh, I've, I had to chat to somebody who who works in loneliness research. And that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. 
Medical Protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Let's go back to my interview with Fahana Man about loneliness. Hi there, I'm Dr. Fahana Mann. I'm a psychiatrist in North London and a Welcome Clinical Research Training Fellow at the Division of Psychiatry at UCL. And you mainly study loneliness, is that right? That is correct, yes. Okay, well, I mean, I guess this episode is really about uh, the impact of lockdown and sort of how, how people are managing it at the moment and, and the repercussions of that in the future. Um, what do we know about loneliness? In terms of mental health, what we know is that it is well established that loneliness is strongly associated after adjusting for other um, established risk factors and, and, and demographics and things like that with poorer health outcomes, both poor physical health and poor mental health. Um, the other thing that's become clearer over, over recent years is that whilst most of what we know is in older people, that is mainly because the studies were done in older people. Um, there's much less known about the experiences of younger people, but we do know that there are, there are peaks of people across populations identifying as lonely, particularly in the sort of under 25 age group. And that's especially important now over lockdown, um, when such large numbers of people having kind of their you know, important life stage disrupted uh, and finding it difficult to connect with others um, and, and various levels of stress on top of their the sort of loneliness. So do we know why that there is that peak then in that particular age group? It um, feels a bit counterintuitive in a way, doesn't it? Like if we think back to my 20s. It does. And, and how nice for you, Tom. Um, but, <laughs> um, but it's true. And I think that's why so much of the existent sort of literature and, and peer-reviewed published work is in over 55s and over 65s, because we intuitively think of older age as a time when you become lonely because you know, you've gone you may have lost contact with children or, or, or lost a partner or, or unable to get to places so we don't fully understand exactly why but there are a number of reasons you know it's an important time for many sort of life changes or role changes so for example leaving home going to university um, obviously it doesn't mean everybody uh, under the age of 25 or in that sort of 18 to 25 age group is lonely but but that so many of them are experiencing loneliness so it'll be those changes like, say, having to find employment, uh, leaving home for the first time, having to, to make relationships and finding that their social skills maybe aren't um, where they want them to be. Uh, so, so lots and lots of different reasons. And of course, social media is the other thing that comes up more recently that people um, are trying to understand. 
And it just makes me wonder about the term loneliness. And it's, it's of course, it's, I imagine, well, it must mean very different things to different people, um, but we're trying to use it in a scientific way, aren't we? I mean, is, it, is, is there a rough definition that you can give us to, so we're not making mistakes on this? Yes, in fact, I'm, I'm glad you asked. We probably should have started with, started with that, shouldn't we? So what is loneliness? Uh, I think it's super important in any kind of research for us to kind of be clear on what we're talking about, especially, as you say, with a word like this that might mean some different things to different people. The first thing is that, um, and we have written a paper on this that I'm happy, obviously, to share, looking at different, different, different concepts like social networks, like social isolation, loneliness, uh, you know, living alone, all these different things that people might approximate, approximate to mean the same thing. Um, so when we're talking about loneliness, what we're talking about is, first of all, a subjective state. So I can't decide whether you're lonely or not just by looking at you or by, um, you know, without asking you to report whether you feel lonely or not. As opposed to, for example, if I if I count the number of people you live with, I can objectively say whether you live alone or not, or whether you're isolated or not by you know counting the number of interactions you've had, for example. So it's that subjective feeling, um, and 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 one useful way to think about it is it's a perceived mismatch between the level of social connectedness a person desires would like to have, and what they have, and. It's by definition a distressing experience when we're talking about it here. So we're not talking about solitude because some people will quite rightly say, actually, I love spending time on my own. It's it's the best time of my day or, you know, it's a good thing for me. It's part of my well-being. That's different. That's fine. If it's a sort of something you choose to do and, and, and you're happy, then that's not what we're talking about. So we're talking about a distressing, subjective uh, mismatch between that connection that you need and what you have. And so... Uh, you mentioned intervention. We should talk about intervention. So as, as a GP, yeah. I want to know, well, I guess I, I probably don't ask about loneliness enough and, and even though it is quite, quite a big thing at the moment, but yeah. when I do and I identify it and I see that there's an impact, what, what's the intervention? Uh, we, I have my social prescribing link worker. Uh, yes. She's very good. Uh, but uh, is that it? <laughs> so yeah no I'm glad you're I mean the, the first thing is 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 just the fact that you're even doing this on the podcast and you're bringing it up you know um is that awareness that this is a legitimate use of of your time um and it will actually you know even if it's it's convincing commissioners or whoever that, that we're, we're doing these things it does it saves money because people will be more healthy they will be less likely to come back there are some studies looking at outpatient attendance and loneliness I think in the US um and lonely people were certainly attending much more for and, the, and as far as they could tell, it matching, you know, for other, all the other chronic health problems that that was predicting coming back more often. Um, so it's definitely a worthwhile thing in spending your time in doing, in addressing and considering with the person. Um, I think in the UK, there was, some, there was some, there was a study that said something like 76% of GPs said that they, they met at least one to five patients who were lonely on a daily basis. So that they're, they're, they're coming your way, um, whether or not they say they are. Um, and I think the other thing to bear in mind is that they may not look obviously lonely, as you say, that there are this, these, these young people who feel disconnected increasingly um, from uh, from other people or, or not finding those relationships. So the first thing you mentioned, the social prescribing and the link workers, I will say that the evidence base for exactly whom, you know, what works for in social prescribing is yet is, is in its infancy. So well, there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. And I hope that it does do all the things that it, it should, it's hoping to do, but we don't know whether it will definitely reduce loneliness depending on how it's done, because I think there's a lot of variation. But it's definitely a good place to start. 
um, because you can then begin to, I think the key thing in that is the link worker tailoring the intervention to suit the person. Because one thing you find is that it, one size does not fit all. So there's no obvious, well, let's send everybody gardening. It really depends on just a, a brief exploration, which hopefully the link worker would be trained in doing, of exactly what factors there are in that person's, what strengths there are in that person's network at the moment, whether it's an issue around uh, sort of cognitive uh, things or, or it's a social skills issue or it's something to do with having a mental health problem and, and internalised stigma, which has a different approach, or whether it's just someone who's actually quite happy, quite confident, but they're new to the area. That's a whole different approach. So that key step of, of having the chance to explore what is it in this person's network that will help them to find those connections and the link worker, I think, is, is, is a great place to start with that. And allowing the person to have some autonomy in choosing. I think that's the other thing that seems to help when you increase a person's sense of autonomy over changing their situation, they tend to do better. So the ability to say, well, I'll try this, but if it doesn't work, I will try this other thing. And actually, I've decided I want to I want to give the this group a go or, or, or start my own group. So that level of autonomy, I think, is, is another big thing. And just arranging another check-in uh, down the line and, and reassuring the person that it's a, it's a perfectly valid thing to, to come with. And looking out for mental health problems, because that's the big link, especially depression, if they are talking about these issues. I mean, do you think in any sense that you know, we're kind of looking in the wrong direction, though, that we, we should be looking at the, you know, the, the bigger drivers of loneliness and, you know, or, or maybe it gets government and others off the hook a bit by having this approach? I, I think it's a very healthy question to ask. And I think um, I'm the last person to want to, to let any government off the hook. So uh, I think the, in, in, in one of the things that we constantly are trying to do with this issue, and, and I'm deliberate, you know, specifically not calling it a disease or an illness because it's not how I'm seeing it. It's, it's, it's an experience that's obviously connecting to, to poorer health. Um, but I think we very much have a duty to highlight these scientific findings and, 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 you know, if governments want to think in terms of money, for example, uh, then highlight just how much it costs to admit people with severe mental health to hospital and how supporting people earlier on and trying to support them around their social connections, for example, will save you money if that's, if that's how you want to see it. And using our, you know, part of what we're doing is health economic analysis. So using this kind of robust scientific approach to say this isn't just a sort of, I don't know, airy fairy issue of, of people not having friends or whatever this is a, this is a serious having a serious impact on people's health and that it takes a multi-pronged approach so that while on one level it may be that you need to do some one-to-one -one work with an individual if that's the, the, what's driving the loneliness or maintaining the loneliness it absolutely can't work if you're not also advocating for you know pushing for things like social prescribing to have an evidence base but also to be rolled out in a way that you know is gathering evidence um pushing to highlight the fact that loneliness you know is strongly linked with things like poverty deprivation you know and those are, are much wider issues um so i think absolutely when we 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 do this stuff and we have to do it well but we can't lose sight of of, of the bigger picture because there's a context in which people have to exist and, and be lonely or not lonely. So, yeah, um, I mean, I just wish I could speak quickly and, cl and clearly, um, or just one of the two would be nice, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was great, really good. I'd like a lot of things there and we can't go through it all but um, in terms of the consultation and and, and me just thinking about it I, mean, I, I, I don't ask people are you lonely I mean I, maybe, maybe that's not the right way of asking it in all cases but I think um, 
legitimizing the use of your time to think about loneliness um i thought was a, a useful thing or maybe just reflecting that i don't do that very well and it might be useful to start yeah definitely i think we all have our kind of um instinct with some patients about you know mm. it's kind of you know who people who are consulting big you know, because they might be feeling lonely or your frequent attenders who, you know, you sometimes suspect just want to have a chat. And so, yeah, maybe addressing that more explicitly might be a, a helpful mm. avenue. Would you say to someone, are you, are you lonely? Do you say that? I don't know, it feels a bit blunt, doesn't it? It feels a bit yeah. kind of confronting, that question. Yeah. I do but, more, uh, more increasingly ask, do you think you're depressed? Or, you know, just rather than... So maybe it's... Do you think it's too, I don't know... Like saying, "How's your mood?" It's a bit too uh, doesn't doesn't quite get to the point quick enough. <laughs> that's what I do. I kind of tread around it. I have to I say, kind of build build up to it. Yeah, How's but your that's not very. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why I always run run over. <laughs> um, um, I did. I mean, I'm so glad you asked that final question because I spent a lot of that interview thinking, well, you know, should this be something that GPs are asking? And of all the kind of limited time and resource that, you know, GPs have, this is a wider problem. And, you know, like so many, um, you know, social prescribing being an example of many initiatives that are rolled out in primary care where you are thinking of the inverse care law and how the people who probably need this most aren't going to be the people who come to you and say, you know, I'm feeling really lonely. Can I see the link worker? Um, and so that's a real concern. And I, I get what Fahan is saying is that, you know, we have to do, we have to do both. We can't, mm. we can't like not do what we can in general practice. But I think, again, it just comes back to this finite resources and how do we use that best to serve the people who need it the most? I also think that, I mean, I I really um, appreciated this interview for so many reasons, um, and and it's this f- this feature of loneliness being subjective, which also makes it really challenging. Like sometimes being in a new group of people. Also, like let's say that you know you connect to a link worker and you go to whatever activity they deem that they kind of work with the patient to say, you know, this seems to be where your interests lie. This might be tailored to you. And even if you have that really wonderful experience of being connected to a link worker, finding a tailored intervention and trying it out, like being in a new group of people when you're just desperately lonely and don't know any of them can just be really hard. And the fact is it takes a lot of time to actually make real connections mm. with people over and above making their acquaintance. And it's, I just think that probably this is affecting a lot of people and um, it's just not something that we can fix for people. It's really hard. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and we're very much, well, feels like we're seeing things very much downstream and we can try and sort of, kick things upstream a bit but actually we need to be looking right at the top to see what why it's happening and like so many things that we've discussed um about the pandemic this is you know certainly the mental health impact of lockdown and other restrictions is you know having this acute kind of impact but actually loneliness is not new these are all kind of things that we're aware of and 
you know, the social determinants that we know of, you know, I don't know, it's just, it seems to me like another example of um, the pandemic kind of uh, exacerbating or kind of preying on those things that we, we already know about or that we kind of distantly maybe know about, but it brings to the fore. Yeah. Um, just one other thing I'll mention is um, Fahana emailed me afterwards to to say one other point that she she thought um, might might be useful uh, is when you're talking to somebody about their their health or well being and and how people often spend a lot of time and money on um, things like eating healthily or gym memberships um, that perhaps we can suggest or or perhaps they they spend less time thinking about their social connections as a well of uh, as a way of um, maintaining their well-being or stay, staying well and perhaps we we can use what we know about loneliness and how it links with these uh negative health outcomes uh to help encourage people to to, to make more time for those things or to prioritize the social connections more i just want to go back to something you said tom which is that sometimes mm-hmm. you know we might be the social connection for people hmm. You know, I was, I'm thinking about a patient that I saw in Cambodia who, you know, was living away from family, estranged from family. And actually, like, you kind of, at some point as a GP, have to be that connection for people, you know, and that, Mm. I'm not really sure where I'm going with that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. And. Yeah, it's 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 sometimes can, hard to, to recognise, isn't it? But also that um in a in a strange way, I suppose, particularly during lockdown when you know you're not seeing anybody outside your household, that patients can be your social connection. Uh and on that note, uh I think I should leave this this Zoom meeting between us uh and go and talk to some patients. So oh. So thank you to our guests today, uh, Daisy and Fahana. We hope you're enjoying listening to Deep Breath In and we hear that a good thing to help with loneliness and other, other things is to rate us on iTunes or uh, subscribe. Uh, it really helps to, to spread the word and get our listeners above a thousand. Uh, and increase your sense of social connection. Exactly, yes. yes. And email us too, um, practice at bmj.com. We'd love to hear from some of our listeners. And so until next time, uh, thank you to Jenny. Thanks, Tom. See you later. And Navjoy, see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.